Welcome to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Leaders from across Alaska work year-round on a number of key issues to Alaska Native people, from healthcare, education, justice, to climate change. Due to the pandemic, many meetings, conferences, and in-person gatherings have been held online. Many people are taking part in the statewide virtual 2021 Alaska Federation of Natives annual convention, Recognizing 50 years since the passage and implementation of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, also known as ANCSA. Leaders also advocate for their people year-round on the national level to Congress and the federal government. We'll hear from tribal leaders who took part in the first White House Tribal Nations Virtual Summit, hosted by President Biden and his cabinet. That's all next on Alaska's Native Voice. This is Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The pandemic has changed the way business is being conducted, including how tribal leaders advocate to members of Congress and interact with the White House and federal officials moving to online platforms. In November, President Biden and his cabinet secretaries hosted their first White House Tribal Nations Summit virtually. Alaska Native leaders took part in panel discussions on a number of issues, one of the topics was climate change. Here's Melanie Banky with Kowarik taking part in the climate change impacts and solutions panel. I'm very excited and honored to be uh, joining you today on this panel. Um, I think that there has been some progress that was made under the Obama administration that could be carried over into the Biden administration. One of the key policy um, changes that was implemented under the Obama administration was uh, establishing a climate uh, change resiliency, the Northern Bering Sea Climate Change Resiliency Area that provided some protections for the Bering Sea. This executive order was undone by President Trump and then reinst reinstated by um, President Biden. One of the things that I believe the current administration could do is to ensure that we're not caught in the crossfires of political, a football, political football game is to assist us in helping this become law under Congress. These kinds of policy changes that are instituted, not just the Northern Bering Sea Climate Resiliency Area, but a lot of the other protections that this administration puts into place, we need to have an eye on the long end game of ensuring that Congress also uh, enacts legislation that is complementary to administrative orders, executive orders, et cetera. I do think there's a lot of opportunity on the international forum to give tribal nations more of a voice. Um, the Arctic Council, the IMO are a couple of forums where I feel like we've got observer status, but um, when it comes to protecting our own homelands, mitigating climate change, et cetera, we're, um, we're not able to fully participate in those international forums and it's our people and our nations that are being impacted directly. My concern is that tribal nations and our citizens and our members are going to end up becoming climate change refugees. Um, and this will, this will result in the loss of entire cultures and people. If we all have to move to urban areas, there's going to be a significant part of the nation's cultural knowledge, wealth um, that would be lost. Um, increasing research and allowing us to participate in those uh, research projects, I think would be good. Um, infrastructure investment is great. Uh, that uh, $221 million is in my mind though, a drop in the bucket and we're going to need more than that. Um, just up here in Alaska, the needs are so great. Um, for example, we've got flooding, wildfires, entire um, ecosystem collapses in some of our um, different parts of Alaska. Green energy, um, investing, green, uh, investing in green energy for tribal communities, I think would be great. Um, tribal set-asides for any kind of funding that has to do with uh, climate change would be another area where the Biden administration could be of assistance, not just in DOI um, funding areas, but across all departments. If there's anything that is going to be um, funding 
related to climate change coming down the pike, there should be tribal set-asides because we are uh, citizens of the United States as well. We've heard from tribal leaders across the country about how vital infrastructure is in the mitigation of climate change. This need for adequate infrastructure is even more pronounced across Indian country and for indigenous communities. The once-in-a-generation uh, once Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act signed by President Biden contains $1.2 trillion in funding for transformative programs and services and numerous tribal-specific provisions. President Banke, could you please comment on the relationship between strong infrastructure and the fight against climate change for tribes and native communities? I could answer that from a real technical perspective. I do have a master's degree in rural development, but advisor McCarthy just inspired me to add a little bit of speaking from my heart here. Um, recently, somebody suggested to me that I should walk into a room like my ancestors sent me. And so coming from that perspective, um, when it comes to infrastructure, we as nations, as people, need to be looked at just as critical as protecting national monuments for our nation. Um, when you look at cultures throughout the United States, Native American cultures are the only unique um, culture to the United States that are indigenous. We are native to this country and we need to be viewed as just as important as national monuments because we are living, breathing national monuments. Our cultures, our communities, our traditions. Um, when it comes to some physical natural national monument um, being under threat or even our man-made ones, when you think of you know, for example, if the Lincoln Memorial was deteriorating, there would be all this focus on shoring it up and protecting it. Well, our communities are just as deserving as protection as these national monuments are. Uh, we are a national treasure. Our nations and our people and our culture and our history, and it's not just something that should be placed in the Smithsonian Museum to look at anecdotally um, reflecting back. Administrations come and go, and our US political system is based on shifting sands. But one thing that has always been constant um, is our methods of leadership. Our, our wisdom is passed down from generation to generation. Our cultural values, uh, what is viewed as important, those things that we identify um, our entire cultures um, and we carry those traditions on and those cultural values on. So when it comes to infrastructure, I think it's great that we've invested. Uh, the Biden administration just had a huge win. I think that's going to be great for addressing some of the immediate needs of this country and our, our even our tribal nations infrastructure needs. One difference I think though between tribal nations and um, Native Americans and the way our U.S. political system is set up is, like I said, each administration is looking at just the next four years. What can they get in the immediate four years to make the most impact? Whereas we take the long view, seven generations forward. When it comes to infrastructure, I think for all 500 plus tribes, the U.S. could initiate a long-range infrastructure planning process, identifying the infrastructure needs of each of those communities to ensure that they're, they're sustainable throughout the next hundred years, not just the next four years, not just the next eight years, but what are those infrastructure needs and view it from the lens of protecting these 500 plus tribal communities as though they were a national monument under threat. Um, we've got so I'll go back to my technical part. That was me. That was my ancestor speaking. I do think that in terms of infrastructure, um, we've got the need for investment in um, transportation systems being protected. Um, we've got erosion, um, seawalls that need to be built, um, protection from flooding, protection from um, permafrost melt. We've got entire water and sewer systems in our Alaskan villages that are failing because the permafrost is melting. Um, energy systems, looking at ways that we can tap into hydro, solar, wind, tidal systems um, for green energy. Um, and then also the fires. Um, you know, I'm talking from a coastal Native Alaskan perspective. It's seven degrees here, it's pretty cold. 
but throughout the US, we've got tribal nations that each face unique threats. Um, there's wildfire threats, there's droughts, food security is at stake. So I think for the US to truly be thinking in the next, um, not just, so don't look just in the next four years. Uh, this infrastructure bill is a huge win, but let's start planning for the next 10,000 generations as well. Um, the, the tribal set aside again, I think in any kind of infrastructure bill, um, there needs to be consideration for um, tribal communities. But I think it's just a change in mindset. When the Arctic strategy was being developed, um, the number one priority of course is world peace between the US and our other Arctic nations. Number two, uh, this was under the Obama draft Arctic strategy was protection of the ecosystem and the natural resources. And then number three was indigenous people. And I argued that right behind world peace should be the protection of indigenous people. We are part of the ecosystem. We're not just users of it. We feel the changes to our environment before the scientists can even detect it. So I think it's changing the, the mindset, the lens through which Native American people are viewed as uh, we're often considered secondary to protecting some, you know, endangered animal species. Well, we are endangered. We're, I, you should list us on the endangered species list because that's truly how I feel the threat is ex existential to us as a people. Um, so thank you for allowing me to speak from my mind and my heart and as though my ancestors sent me and I've got my descendants behind me that I have to protect. That was Melanie Banky talking about climate change at the 2021 White House Tribal Nations Summit. Alaska Native leaders also took part in panels about public safety and justice and infrastructure, housing, and energy. Here's Central Council of Tlingit and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska President Richard Peterson discussing infrastructure. Holding a White House summit like this is a promising move, but only if it is followed by big-scale action. Enactment of the bipartisan infrastructure framework and the Build Back Better package offers a truly extraordinary moment of opportunity for each of us to make a mark in our time and our leadership. However, the acute housing, community development, and infrastructure needs in much of Indian country are worsening. The Biden administration must go even bigger if it is to have any lasting positive impact on Indian country. The great intentions and good works of prior presidential administrations have not been enough to turn the tide. And the pandemic has made the growing gap between Indian country and America even worse. It will take a focused federal effort at the scale of a, of a moonshot to restore and liberate Indian country from the growing burden of many decades of accumulated unmet need. Substantially more money must be paired with more nimble management authorities. The latest technological innovations must be coupled with smart global marketing models. The, the vastness and remoteness of much of Indian country, including much of Alaska, begs for the best of 21st century infrastructure and housing construction and design technologies. <clears throat> because of its unmet needs, Indian country should be at the front of the line for the application of the latest solutions. In Southeast Alaska, for example, why won't America's Silicon Valley produce high-speed broadband technologies that work to connect our many roadless village communities isolated by water and mountains? Why won't America's personal mobility gurus produce high-speed all-weather watercraft and aircraft public transit that ferry our villages, villagers, supplies, and products where roads cannot? Why won't America's housing industry produce decent, safe, energy efficient, uncrowded, affordable, and culturally fitting homes in our remote homelands? Secretary Buttigieg, innovation in urban and mass transportation markets is truly exciting, but with the DOT under your forward thinking leadership, will it bend its funding and authority in ways that reach into the far corners of rural America where much of Indian country lives and works? Conceptually, I know you understand that our relatively small population scattered across vast areas means that our per mile cost will be incomparable to metropolitan projects, but will DOT funding and policy under your watch continue to mean that 
Increasingly, our only choice is to abandon our tribal communities for the big cities or to stay in our villages with unmet needs and fall even further behind the rest of America. Uh, so I want to turn very quickly to uh, a, just a very brief response on the types of technical assistance that you all believe would be helpful uh, for tribes to take full advantage of the new law. President Peterson. More than just technical assistance and training, our tribes and many other tribes simply need the federal empower empowerment that comes with complete authority, full funding and robust technological tools to apply the latest and most appropriate innovative ideas. Tribes are fully capable of running very complex governments and enterprises, but what we still lack is sufficient funding and full authority to build out the last miles of transportation and infrastructure systems so that they actually reach tribal communities and interconnect us with the rest of America. What works in one place may not in another, because as they say, there are many different cookie cutters in the Indian country kitchen. But what always does work everywhere in Indian country is well-funded tribal self-governance authority that is unfettered by federal interference. And I would say lastly, uh, Senator Buttigieg and, or Secretary Buttigieg and Secretary Granholm, uh, we invite you to Alaska, come to Southeast Alaska and see how difficult those last miles are with our uh, vast mountain ranges and the Pacific Ocean at our door. That was Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes President Richard Peterson. The White House also hosted a youth forum with Nike and Seven, the Center for Native American Youth, and Alaska Native Youth Leader discussed food security. My name is Sam Schimmel. I'm Nike Indian and Siberian Yupik Eskimo from Gamble, Alaska, in Kenai. Uh, I sit uh, on the uh, I sit as the vice chair of the Arctic Youth Network, an organization that's dedicated to increasing the ability of young people to advocate on behalf of the changes that they're trying to prevent in the Arctic. Uh, I also uh, am the founder and organizer of something called Operation Fish Drop, which is a program that's brought over 20,000 pounds of salmon to our indigenous communities across Alaska. So as Native people, we understand the interconnectedness of all things. Um, please explain the connection food has to mental health Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to the Conference of Parties uh, that was held in Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, I was thinking about uh, when, when we were flying into to Glasgow, you could see down on the English countryside. And all across it, there were little um, stone fences that siloed off the land. Uh, you saw that farmland was separate from grazing land, which was separated from forests. And I think that's emblematic of the larger Western way of thinking. Uh, in which knowledge and, and pieces of our environment and our being are siloed, uh, which is at odds with our indigenous ways. If you fly over my lands in Alaska, you won't see any fences. You'll see land and water and stone and mountains all mixing together. Uh, one of the things that is a present problem right now in Alaska uh, and for my communities is that we're not having access to our traditional foods. And this is the direct result of climate change. In the Bering Sea, where I come from, uh, we don't uh, have sea ice some years. And that means that we're not able to practice our subsistence ways, which means that we're not able to teach our young people how to put up our traditional foods or how to hunt or fish in our traditional ways. It also means that our young people aren't eating our foods from our soul. They're not eating our first foods. Uh, and I think about um, something that was told to me while running Operation Fish Drop by an elder from Cooper Bay. And she said, every morning I eat salmon. Every morning I eat salmon because I have, if I don't, I don't have energy for the day. If I don't, my mind isn't clear, my mind isn't still. And so our traditional foods are something that are much larger than simple nutrition. Uh, they align our body, they align our spirit, they allow us to be at home even if we're away from our places. And so when we don't have access to these, when we don't have access to our traditional foods, you see that things start to slip. You see that languages aren't being passed down in the home. You see that traditions aren't being practiced. You see that indigenous ways of knowing and being aren't making it down to our young people and they're not being remembered by our elders and not being practiced by our people who are our parents' age. And so when it comes to food security, it's not only about nutrition, but it's about cultural uh, security as well. 
It's about ensuring that uh, when we have access to traditional, when we have access to our traditional foods, we have access to our traditions, to our identity, to our peoples. And, and, and that's really central. And so all of these things are connected. When we don't have access to our uh, traditions, when we don't have a strong sense of identity, you see things and evils creep up. You see higher rates of alcoholism. You see higher rates of poor mental health outcomes. You see higher rates of suicide. When you see communities that are fed well, that have access to traditional foods and have access to those traditions associated with them, our communities are healthy. Our communities are happy. And so uh, I think really that's, that's one of the, the things that gets overlooked when we, when we talk about food as simple food rather than as a part of our cultural identity. How are you connecting traditional foods to the community through or during this current global pandemic? I think that that's, that's something that's really important. Um, for our communities in Alaska, the pandemic really, there, there were huge food security issues that were present before the pandemic, but the pandemic really laid them to bear. Uh, supply chain issues meant that our rural uh, village stores didn't have things in stock. Uh, and that means critical things like ammunition. Um, our communities, a lot of them, some of them don't have grocery stores. The ones that do, they're very small. Uh, they have things like flour and soda and uh, equipment for being able to go gather our own food. When those break down, it means that exorbitant prices are being charged to our communities where there aren't very many jobs, uh, where there isn't much money and where uh, being able to buy a new fishing net means the difference between being able to put enough food on your table for the winter and not. Um, in terms though, of what I've been doing over the, the pandemic to, to try and address food insecurity. Um, one of the issues with the pandemic is that it made it so that our elders and our community members couldn't travel home to practice subsistence. Uh, there's two main hubs in Alaska where people move to and that's Fairbanks and Anchorage. Um, and a lot of our native community moves to there because they either need to get jobs, they want better education for their kids, better Western education for their kids. They need to seek uh, health care, things like that, elder care. And during the pandemic, our villages were closed. People weren't able to get home. That meant that you weren't able to go fishing, you weren't able to go hunting, you weren't able to get uh, your, your traditional foods. And so I started Operation Fish Drop. Um, and it started as a really small project, something that started with 500 pounds, um, working with a number of different partners to raise money, to get seafood donations, to try and get food to our rural Alaska Native elders and families who didn't have access to salmon. Uh, and it grew from there. Uh, every time that I'd meet with them, I'd ask them for a little bit more and a little bit more. And slowly we grew that number to, to about 20,000 pounds, which we then were able to give out in 25 pound boxes to our, uh, our families, to our indigenous families and to our indigenous elders. Um, Christy, you talked about it. Uh, our native elders face food insecurity at an incredibly high rate. And our urban indigenous relatives face culturally relevant food insecurity at an astronomical rate. When you move out of your village and you move into a larger city or out of your community into a larger city, uh, that means that a lot of times you're cut off from your family who would traditionally provide for you. Uh, in our community, when a young person harvests their first animal or catches their first fish, we don't take any of it. Uh, that goes to our elders, that goes to our families, that goes to our cousins and our relatives. And when you don't live in your community, when you've been displaced or you had to go into a larger city to get medical treatment or you're seeking elder care, uh, you don't have those support systems in place that allow you to have access to your traditional foods. And we're not going to ask a 90-year-old woman to go out and go fishing for herself. We're going to say, we're going to bring you food. We're going to make sure that you have what you need in order to teach your grandkids how to put up fish. And so I think that there's a lot of room for... Uh, improvement within that system uh, between federal, uh, state, public and private partnerships, funding projects that one increase food that address immediate food insecurity, things where immediate in-kind food aid that is relevant uh, is given to our communities is really important. And then two, using government systems to help finance programs that allow us to be self-sufficient. That would mean making sure that our communities have capital to be able to purchase boats so that we can have collective fishing, making sure that we have resources to be able to buy fishing nets so that way we can conduct our own subsistence fishing as a group and provide for our families when maybe one individual doesn't have capital 
That was Sam Schimmel taking part in the White House Youth Forum in November. You're listening to Alaska's Native Voice. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Now we hear from an Alaska Native model making waves in the fashion world. Juana Rose Chasing Horse Potts shined bright at this year's New York Fashion Week and Met Gala. She's also a Native rights advocate who fights for the protection of the environment and Native ways of life. I caught up with Juana this fall as she shared her thoughts about Fashion Week. Being welcome into those spaces is not common for indigenous people yet and the more we're starting to see uh, native people indigenous people being welcomed into these spaces it can feel very um you know like you feel like an outsider you know you don't feel like you belong there um there were certain moments where i felt alone and like no one really understood me and what i stood for um but there are also really good moments where people would come up to me and remind me like, you know, you're here for a reason, uh, you're representing your people so beautifully and it's okay to feel um, very alone, but don't forget that there are people that support you and our, your ancestors are walking with you. So having those little reminders and even my aunties texting me, letting me know um, that I'm not alone even though it may feel lonely that my ancestors are with me all the time, that um, our communities, our indigenous communities are rooting for me. And that really kept me grounded the entire time I was there. So it was amazing. I had an overall great experience, very blessed to be able to, you know, represent in that way during fashion week. And um, yeah, it was definitely like, I'm still having a really hard time processing everything that had happened and, everyone that I had met, um, all the things that I did. And it was um, truly an honor. And what does it mean to be able to have a voice um, bringing indigenous representation to the fashion industry? What does that mean to you? It means a lot to me. I still sometimes have a hard time finding the words to articulate it, but genuinely like, walking into those spaces and, um, you know, like I was saying, feeling alone, but remembering that I'm representing my nation, my people, indigenous people all over, you know, that really kept me motivated. And, you know, I constantly told myself, like, even though you're here and you may be experiencing these beautiful things, you know, um, you're here representing so much more than just yourself. And I always have to remind myself, like, I'm here not only to, you know, make myself, you know, um, look better or have, you know, my career shoot up in that way. But genuinely, for me, it has nothing to do with myself. Like, I take pride in who I am and where I come from. And that's what is, you know, the main reason why I've started doing anything in the first place um, is just having that pride and um, staying grounded and believing that no matter where I walked in this world, that I had something with me, that I could bring something to the table, that I um, can educate people on our people's issues, our um, what we face on a day-to-day basis. And it's very powerful knowing that um, people are starting to recognize that, recognize our beauty in not just fashion, but the way we carry ourselves and how 
we um, protect the land, we protect the waters, how it's not about us as people, it's about the nation, the entire collective as a whole. So yeah. And sometimes the fashion industry is criticized for appropriating you know, native culture, native design, um, native traditions, but being an indigenous person and being able to have a voice and being able to show a true representation, how is that gonna make a difference for you? So how I really started modeling um, and all of this was, you know, I started using my voice and my platform to raise awareness for many different things, overall indigenous sovereignty. I had done a lot of work with our communities here in Alaska, um, protecting the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, um, spreading awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and so on. Having those that kept me grounded and reminding myself that, you know, I am not trying to be a sellout. I don't wanna use, you know, the word like, oh, a native model and just use it for my own you know, um, look or whatever it is, I wanted to be able to bring not just myself, but what I stand for, what I represent to every space that I walk in in the fashion world. And when it comes to appropriation, you know, when I walk into these spaces and they're trying to put something like very appropriated, like clothing or whatever, they're trying to put something on me and I don't feel comfortable because it's not you know, made by an indigenous person or this designer didn't um, collaborate with an indigenous person that the, these designs were stolen and used to, you know, profit them. I, I tell the stylist, like, I'm not really comfortable with this. I just like, it feels like I'm, it's appropriating my culture and my people. And if this was made or collaborated with an indigenous person, I wouldn't have an issue. And I haven't had a single problem with it. They completely respect it, which is very, nice for me to know because the first time I had to say something about it I was very nervous like I didn't think that they would respect that I thought that they would you know tell me oh you have to though like you know you have to wear this this is for this shot or whatever it is but um my favorite part about fashion week was walking for Gabriella Hurst she partnered with Naomi Glasses and her family and the Navajo Nation to create this beautiful line and different pieces in her collection. And she also partnered with other indigenous people from other regions to create these beautiful clothing. And she went out of her way to find native models. She told the casting director and the casting director herself was like really wanting to show that representation and have as many indigenous people there because if she was collaborating with indigenous people, she wanted to represent that in the best way possible. She wanted to embody that. And so I think I, you know, w walked into that space feeling confident and not alone. Like that was the first time I didn't feel alone, seeing other indigenous models there and like connecting with them and like laughing with them and, you know, talking about how similar our features are because, you know, we all had like the native nose and whatever it was, walking into that space and not feeling so alone was so beautiful. And being able to bring that and also connect on that level is very special because I think that was the first time in fashion history that that was done, having more than one native model um, and collaborating, collaborating with native designers to create a beautiful line and represent it and embody it in that way. So. I think it's extremely important that instead of appropriating, just reach out to other indigenous people and be artists and designers and collaborate with them, not steal their designs, our sacred designs and whatever it is, it's extremely important. And I feel very blessed to be a part of it. And there are a lot of uh, different native fashion designers um, across the country, and there are many native fashion shows. Are these types of events, you know, getting more attention, or do you think they're still, you know, a, a close secret? They are really starting to get out there more, and every time that I'm able to bring up a native designer or talk about um, our own fashion, I include that as much as possible. And I always say there's so many beautiful designs by native designers, artists. There's so many beautiful lines being created that is genuine, that isn't stolen, that isn't marketed 
to, you know, um, hurt, hurt anyone. And I think, you know, being able to, um, share that with people in the fashion world, um, at that level is extremely important. And it brings me so much pride and joy because people are like, wow, I had no idea. And then they go home thinking about it and like they go home and they're like, I learned something new today. I'm going to look it up. And I've had a lot of people reach out to me after a shoot or after whatever I got done working on. They text me later on and they're like, hey, I really appreciate everything that you had to say. I had no idea. I went home and did my own research and I will continue to follow and share as much as possible. And that's what truly brings me joy is being able to make that change there. And you had mentioned your work as a native advocate and also a protector, um, being Han Kuchen and also Lakota. Um, what, what is your message to these different issues that you bring to the table? Um, there's so many different, I feel like, messages I can bring. But overall, you know, when I'm in these spaces, when I talk about my work, um, I have done a lot. I went to D.C. and I lobbied and I met AOC and talked with congressmen and women on protecting our sacred lands and what that means, not just for us as indigenous people, but for the world as a whole. Um, I always I always include that indigenous people protect 80% of the world's biodiversity and that um, that's an extremely important thing because n not a lot of people know that and I think that the more people know about how much we do as a community then they realize like wow these people are really going out of their way and putting themselves on the line to protect what's left and what's precious to us, what's sacred to us. And that's extremely beautiful and important. But I feel like um, people are so drawn to the fact that I had made it to the Met Gala, that I had been in Fashion Week. And, you know, anytime I have um, any kind of speaking engagement or a chance to talk about where I come from, who I am, what I stand for, I go out of my way as much as possible to bring up how important that work is to me because it's the main reason why I started modeling in the first place. I was doing a lot of the advocacy work and people started recognizing that. And um, because of that recognition, you know, I am where I'm at today and I wanna continue that. And I wanna bring that everywhere I go because it's extremely important. And I feel like I carry so much traditional knowledge that from you know being passed down from my grandma to my mom to me and my ancestors before that it's extremely important to share with the world that we have that that you know we have so much um teachings and practices that keep us strong in many different ways and our connections to the land is extremely important that was model and native rights advocate Quana rose chasing horse pots an Alaska Native performing artist is out with his first solo album dedicated to ancestors and future generations. Tara Gatewood caught up with Stephen Blanchett this fall on the talk show Native America Calling. It is my pleasure to take us to Juneau, Alaska, where we have Kajun on the line. Welcome to Native America Calling. Good morning, Tara, and good morning, everybody. Uh, so good to be here with you. And Kajung, I know you have a big following out there, so go ahead and just um, say hi to the folks and any greetings you'd like to give them. I know, that's what I was just thinking about. I was just wanting to say hello and Jemai, I miss you guys. Hello to all my family and friends out there. Um, it's been a long time since we've been all uh, all together, but uh, I'm so excited to be able to just connect a little bit here. And you got some gifts for them, too, some gifts for their ears and hearts. And we'll get to that um, in just a moment. And Kajung, tell us about Mew and, and what we find in it. Oh, man, Mew. This has been a, a project that I've been working on for a few years. And Mew is, um, is a word in Yupik. Um, when you come from a place, um, you usually put mew on the back of it. So, like, I'm from Mampereksa, so I would say Mampereksa mew. Um, so I'm from this place. So that's, you know, that's the reason for the titling of, of mew. And it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, it's it's our Inuit language has is so connected from, you know, Russia 
Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and um, a lot, a lot of like in the Inupiaq and all the, the Galatasaray, those languages, Inuit languages, they say me at the end. So it would have been like super fitting if it was like Hachung me, but the, you know, me is in my Yupik language. But you know, this the, these songs are. Um, this is a, this is kind of just kind of representation of of um, my music, you know, that people don't really uh, get a chance to hear this side of me. Um, you know, that's you know we've been performing together um, in Bumiwa for almost thirty years, and um, you know our the base of our music has been really our our language, our Yupik language, and so inspired by our traditional dancing. And uh, on our stories and our traditional stories, and so that you know, that's a lot of really what people have been hearing. But you know, what what this album is 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 me sitting on my deck, uh, you know, in my backyard with my guitar and just you know, just strumming um, and thinking about these songs and thinking about ways that you know, I just my, you know, my feelings and thoughts. So um, that's that's a little bit what you're going to get. So it's a different side of of, uh, of myself. Well, you know what? Let's give it straight to them. This is Gajung off of his new album, Mew. So much fun. Thank you for that, Gajung. And um, boy, you had me dancing here. I appreciate that. Midday for some, morning for others, and, you know, the blood is flowing. I appreciate that. And um, tell me a little bit. Guide us through what we just heard. Oh, man. Okay. First, I want to say thanks to, like, Arius Air Jazz uh, throwing down the rap on that. He's mm-hmm. a young gentleman from from here in Aquan, uh, in Juneau. Um, he's, a, he's a young Senket and, and, and black hip-hop artist. And, oh, he's just a, uh, man, this guy's amazing. And first time I saw him, I, I knew I wanted to collaborate with him. Um, and so I never thought it would be so soon, right? I was like, oh, wow, okay, let's do this. Um, then we also have uh, Delbert Anderson uh, from DDAT, uh, Danae, trumpet player, just amazing. I just want to... Uh, put that out there that I just appreciate the folks that I've been collaborating with on, on this album. But, you know, On That Day was a song that, it's one of those songs that was just, you know, I ex- I experienced something really special and amazing um, with a group of folks um, some years ago. You know, we were doing this youth uh, leadership multicultural uh, conference at the Alaska Native Heritage Center in Anchorage, and 
and we all experienced this, you know, just a really beautiful, um, um, just a spiritual experience. And that that, that song um, is is just kind of a just taking taking people through in my way of just like you know remembering and 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 uh, and memorializing that that experience that I had with them. And it was. It was uh, it was a really beautiful and touching um, thing that um, that I'll remember forever, and and, uh, and I was so happy to be able to put it on there and, and on the song and to the album, and uh, yeah, just uh, yeah, it was a special special thing. And so to have to have Delbert on there and to have Arius and um, Ivan Knight on the he's the, doing the guitar um, solo, uh, man, beautiful beautiful um, artist. And man, Delbert does have a mean sound. And thank you for introducing us to another artist. And I think it's really interesting, too, when we say this is your solo album, but actually you're introducing us to a lot of people and collaborations. That's something I really wanted to do with this album. You know, it was it was uh, the brunt of it. A lot of it was done during during COVID, right? During the last couple of years. And, um, and it gave us, it gave me a chance to really pause and to really think about how I wanted to, to really get this out there. And one of those ways was, you know, I was finding we were doing these distance collaborations already in Bumio, right? We were performing with folks, um, you know, in, in, in different places and spaces and countries and all that. Um, and, and I, it got to me thinking about some of the folks that I wanted to work with that I've seen just really just coming into their world of, in this world of performance art, and so those are artists like like you, you just heard like uh, uh, Arius Air Jazz, you know Delva Anderson. Um, he's been in the game for a while, but you know I'm he's new to me. I'm like just we're just you know met just a couple of years ago, and then um, Akumatu and um, um, uh, Byron Nikolai, Avi uh, Lomholt, you know these amazing artists that people really haven't heard yet but I'm like and so, well a lot I mean I mean some have heard people have heard of them but you know that, that you know that I want to put out there and get out into this into the world and and, and uh, another way to connect and so it was a it was a really important you know thing for me to be able to do that and so uh, and you know having this time to really sit and really think about it uh, it was it was awesome this is only you of the album Mew. Only you can make my heart bleed. Only you can do the things you do to me, girl. Can me my life complete? Your angel, heaven is in you. I look in your eyes, I see the angels. Oh, my time with you will last forever. Kajung, my time in Alaska was filled with many good memories, and one of them being um, what it was like to be there when um, music and song and dance were all being shared, and it is such a welcoming space. And, and of course, thank you to all the communities who often invite others into their space to to feel some of this. And this last song that we're going to share with them, Our Stories, it reminded me of that time where it is just so inviting and, and bringing in the people um, into this dance circle and encouraging them to move and to feel. And so I just want to turn it to you. If there's anything you want to share before we give them Our Stories, go ahead. Oh, 
Yeah, you know, our stories, it's 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 a love song for me. It's like just expressing the deep love and appreciation that I have for our people, like not just Yupik, but all of our all of our people. just some of Native America Calling's interview with music maker Wajun. You've been listening to Alaska's Native Voice. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Lessons from my history But not of how we go back Because we strive to move forward A vision of what we can be Our circle complete as you and me, and we'll we'll fill it with love and we'll fill it with joy and we'll fill it with pride. AFN, Alaska's native voice, is produced and directed by Antonia Gonzalez. Broadcast support provided by the Siri Foundation, Cook and Lit Lending Center. South Central Foundation, Chalista Corporation, Manilak Association, Cook and the Tribal Council, and Rasmussen Foundation. This is a production of KNBA, Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, and Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Service. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.